Hello and welcome to another episode of our show. Today's guest is Casey Hardman. Casey is the author of 13 Years Fostered, A Young Man's Struggle for Life. In his book, he tells the uh, raw narrative story of him and his experiences in the foster system. Uh, and it's, uh, it's just, it's truly a cathartic read and a cathartic write for, uh, for Casey. And we've been so blessed to have him on the show today, so privileged, because uh, coming on the air and talking to someone who you don't know about these things, of course, is always a little bit, um, it takes a lot of vulnerability, takes a lot of courage. And I thank Casey for that. And uh, he's a wonderful person. And uh, he's got a lot of awesome things to say, a lot of words of encouragement. So I hope you enjoy and thank you very much for listening. Uncut, uncensored, and unfiltered. This is an open mind. And you're listening to I'm Probably Wrong About Everything. All right, we have with us Casey Hardman. Casey, thank you for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. Happy to be here. So we, we were just doing a little bit of a preamble before kind of introducing myself. And, you know, I, I, I want to thank you once again for coming onto the show uh, and, and having that trust in me as an interviewer to, to help explore the story that you've written 13 years in foster care. So, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's a pleasure and it's uh, certainly a relief off me to be able to talk about it and uh, to share my experiences and hopefully reach others who've been through similar situations. Well, and, and, and in reading the book too, I was like, oh, this is, the writing itself is so incredibly vulnerable. So like, it's deep, you know, in, in the sense of it's like unabridged, you know, unfiltered, it's raw. This is who I am. This is my story. And I imagine like when, when, when a person writes, there's this idea of like, there's the catharsis of them getting it out. Right. But, but then there's this added piece of putting it out to the world. Did you, did you know when you first started writing this, that you wanted to, to put it out to the public? Um, in some in some ways, yes, but in others, um, I really started um, just because I was at a point in my my life where I needed to work on healing myself from everything I'd been through, and so um, you know I didn't you know know how to kind of get help, but I knew I wasn't a big fan of therapy, although I uh, you know I've had experiences with it, and I knew it did have some benefits, but for me personally, I I feel as though um, finding a way from myself through myself um, to kind of work through everything was going to be my best um, way of actually helping and going through these um, emotions and trying to just figure things out. And so I wanted to write them down and kind of work through them. And uh, it was a long, long process. But, um, you know, I, I definitely had hoped to be able to share. I didn't know if I was going to be able to, but uh, at least even for my sister, just to kind of share that um, my experiences with her to maybe try and help her because she was going through a lot at that time as well. So uh, a, a bit of both. So when, 
I, I was reading in the book, and it sounds like you started writing this as the the documents of you in foster care were sort of released to you. Is that correct? Um, no. So um, the the book was actually written over um, just over ten years time. So I started um, like I started planning and prepping, getting kind of information tidbits from uh, my biological family when I was sixteen. So once I was released from care, and um, and then when I was eighteen, I started uh, actually writing, so um, jotting some things down. So um, it kind of goes all over within um, the next ten years or so. Um, but I really um, got down after I got my case files, which took about nine years to get, and so I was able to kind of go back and um, just kind of vamp things up to in incorporate and include um specifics so like the times and you know the dates and just for the accuracies and right. um just to kind of be like oh well this was included because it was in my case file even though my memory is this so it was kind of a, an inclusion of both now and and, and for listeners i think it might be kind of good to to bring this up they probably know because they're smarter than myself but <laughs> i wasn't aware of what gaslighting was like i'd heard that and essentially it's it's when uh somebody you know innocently enough is trying to coerce somebody into rethinking what has happened so doubting what the person is telling them essentially is my understanding of gaslighting is that is that sort of is, is that a good definition would you say no i i think that's good yeah like okay. I, I, I totally get what you're saying yeah <laughs> so so when you're reading the and where i'm going with this is you're reading these case files and then you have your memories now you didn't have the case files before and as you're kind of formulating things did it sort of make you double think your memories or did it did it kind of bring into did it bring it into uh clarity when you had the notes yeah, it didn't. Um, it didn't really change my memory. I think, if anything, it um, elevated my memory. So it just included things that I wouldn't know. Because um, obviously, you can't live in somebody else's mind, so you don't know exactly what they think or what they're feeling. And um, the I think the real problem for me, though, um, because I did have like certain specific files just because um they're included when you're uh, growing up in the foster system and so you get these little um meetings every so often um but a lot of it wasn't it was just in the voice of the adult right so they're giving their opinion on how what they see what they you know and and um while being a child having these issues you're trying to convey them to the adults but they don't maybe necessarily listen. And so in while reading the case files, I'm able to see specifically what they're saying. And it's, um, you know, you can really kind of tell, okay, they're really not listening to me even <laughs> back then, They, you know, because they're just kind of avoiding everything and just, you know, saying, okay, well, I'm the adult. Um, I know what's what, um, you know, you're just the child. So kind of just sit back and this is how we're going to go about things. So it just elevated, I think, more than anything. Well, you, you bring up a very good point. Uh, when I was doing my undergrad, we talked about childism, which, you know, we hear of racism. It's to, to be uh, prejudiced towards someone's, you know, color of their skin. But there's also childism, childism when, because we're an adult, we think we have a power advantage over a kid that what they're saying isn't valid, right? It's a form of prejudice. Yeah. And it sounds like in your book, 
you, you talk a lot about that, right? Because, because you're smiling, right? You, you mentioned in, in the case notes, oh, he's a happy kid. He's smiling that they associate that with he's fine, but you weren't fine. Right. And a lot of that too. Um, well, it, just to go back, uh, it's, I've actually never heard somebody use the, the childism before. So that's, uh, that's um, going to be something I'm going to keep in mind, but, um, but yeah, so in regards to the smiling, um, I was always told to smile and uh, it was something I touched base on because it seemed as though seeing a child happy, seeing a child smile was the most important thing, whether and regardless of the fact that you're actually giving this child a reason to smile, you know, so just by saying, you know, I want you to smile, that doesn't mean, you know, I have to or I should because why, why should I smile? What are you doing to help me form that smile that's not just forced? right? Just for um, the the vision of, okay, well, we have a happy child, so we're good. Right. And, 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 and how that translates into our, you know, into our adult lives, right? All these learned things, you know, now you're 20, 31, 31. You're as old as me. Okay. We're young. We're just starting out. But anyway, yes. So, so these things, like I've had to really uh, unlearn a lot of the behaviors that I had as a kid. And I imagine that, that you've had to go through that same process. Yeah. And it was, uh, it was really difficult too, because with each move that I make, you know, you're in a different home. So, you know, you're with different people with different views, different opinions, um, you know, this is acceptable, but that's not acceptable. And then it could be reversed somewhere else. And so you're always constantly having to change. And it's, um, you know, in some ways, it's a forced change, just because you're trying to adjust into a new setting, and it's not easy. And so it's just so much. And, and then as you grow, you're trying to adapt and figure out, okay, well, you know, maybe if I can take this this bit from here and this bit from here. I'm gonna, mm. I'm gonna create a, my own little version from kind of various homes, and it's just confusing, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, that that lack of consistency. Yeah. Right. Because, well, now in my reading, so like I said, I'm in chapter four, I believe, and it's you've gone back to your your mom. You've gone okay. back with your mom. And then and then she again says, like, I can't do this. And so you're preparing to go to another home, but they're also interviewing you and your sister. And they're having this conversation uh in front of you with your sister about, you know, something very serious that yeah. is going on between her and your father. Um, and I guess just it's how many, how many different homes because I'm not, I'm not at the end of it. How many different foster homes did you go to? So within my 13 years in, uh, throughout the system, um, I kind of go through various stages. So there's different forms, I guess, of the children's aid. So the, the foster system. So you have your, um, adoption, um, agency through it as well. And so I actually go through all of, um, those, um, agencies and systems, but, um, so within the 13 years, um, including an adoption that ended up failing, um, there was 10 permanent long-term homes, um, with approximately nine, um, relief and short-term. And, uh, so usually, 
for the most part, it was about one uh, one long term per year, and depending on the foster home itself, uh, you know, every so often you'd be sent to a relief stay somewhere for the weekend to kind of give uh, a break to the foster parents, and so then you have um, that additional kind of home within a home. <laughs> right. Now, growing up, I mean, I again, I can't imagine the feelings that you were going through, except for obviously in, in, in what you write of your feelings of like, you know, worthiness and significance and all that. Was there ever somebody, and, and there's one that I'm going to bring up, but was there ever an adult in your life who really stood out and was like, this person truly has my best interests? Yes. So there's a few and for a few different reasons. So for me, um, dealing with so many people, one thing I always wish I had more of, but one thing when I did have it really appreciated was the consistency of the people. Um, so there was this one woman um, through the system who um, at various times would see and interact with and um, she I refer to her as the supervisor. So one thing you'll notice in my book is I don't, the only name that's ever mentioned is my own. So I kind of try to um, give little nicknames to homes and to people. And so she's referred to as the supervisor, but um, she was one consistent person who just always made me feel good. You know, she was always excited to see me. And so it was always a positive interaction and even allowed me that um, safe feeling to want to communicate. So certain feelings or issues that I was having, I'd be like, well, you know, I can write to her or I can try and call her and talk to her. So she was definitely one. And, and then one of my um, social workers when I was around 11. Um, so I also write about her and um, that was before I ended up going to a group home. And so she was another um, really positive uh, influence on my life and somebody I didn't always appreciate, but uh, certainly did later on just because of the lessons that I was taught from her. Are, are you still in communication with uh, those two people? Um, with the supervisor, um, woman I, I, I am currently, um, you know, and she's been really supportive and she was one of the first people I wanted to um, share my book with once it came out because, you know, I've been talking to her over the years and, you know, she was really helpful with trying to get my case files and, mm. and so I definitely wanted to share that with her and uh, so yeah. What, what was that like when you shared that with her? Like, how, how did she respond? Oh, she was just so thrilled and so proud. And, uh, you know, she was, she had always been such a, a light um, in my life. And so knowing how much I struggled, because she was there basically from the beginning. So she understood all that pain. And there was a lot that she didn't even realize just because she wasn't the um, direct contact for me. Um, but she certainly knew of various things. And so it definitely helped her to see certain areas within the system that could be maybe corrected or adjusted to ensure a better upbringing for others in the system currently. And, and oh man, like that's such a great point. Cause, cause I, I work as a, as a counselor within the public school system and uh, parts of me are like, oh, man, am I creating the changes that I want the world to see, right? Because it's very, the work that you're doing 
for it to be effective, it's very small, right? Like it's individual based, you know, I'm, I'm working with you and I'm working with this person, but I can't work with everybody. I'm just one person. Yeah. And that, that's actually very frustrating for me. So, because it's like, I want to be as maximum service, maximum help, but I can't, it's, it's not, it's not exactly possible. That's why I kind of started doing this because I'm like, Hey, maybe that's a better way to broadcast myself. What advice do you have to people that work with at-risk youth um, that can make them better suited to be there for that individual? Oh, um, that's a tough one because <laughs> there's, you know, there's so many things. But um, I think even for somebody like myself in um, the opposite end of the, you know, the situation, um, being the one who needs the, the help from somebody, is um, one thing that I guess could be really beneficial would be to not focus so much on everyone and trying to help everyone or, you know, uh, it would be start, you know, start with just one person, you know, Um, and even by writing my book, you know, even if I could touch just one person's life and make a difference uh, in some way to just one person, then, you know, that's more than I could ask for. So, you know, you start one at a time and it's unfortunate that you can't always be there for everyone, you know, but try to do as much as you can. And, you know, after a while, um, especially by helping people one at a time, you know, you can find ways or think of um, alternatives where it's like, ooh, let's do some form of group setting. So you help more people and then, you know, you kind of branch out from there and you, it's, it. Unfortunately, you know, it's a learning curve, but I think it's a, a beneficial learning curve mm-hmm. in a way. So, and and the unfortunate thing is that you mentioned the social, sorry, social worker that that really helped you out, right? Case yeah. case worker. So, yeah. not all social workers are of the same quality. I'm sure you've experienced, yeah. <laughs> right? Oh, for sure. <laughs> and and that's the other problem. I mean, I think what uh, you know what my benefit as as a, as a you know a counselor a school counselor is that i try to avoid the sort of like the moral like you need to be a good man when you grow up you know that kind of bs it's more just that i'm present and i'm there with the kid you know and it's like let's play chess and i'll beat them but then i'll let them win you know but <laughs> my point is is that it's presence and i think yeah. that a lot of that kind of human connection that human capacity for relationship is not always there these days. No, and it's incredibly important too. You know, you got to find, and especially when you're dealing with so many people, like social workers, counselors, um, if you have the opportunity where you're working one-on-one with somebody, you almost have to do um, a revised, okay, well, this person is better suited in this situation. Um, They require this and this and that, you know, and so you got to, kind of have to change things up a little and where from my experience you know I've had some workers where it's um oh the child's alive you know they have clothes on their back Mm. Uh, I'm sure they're fed because you know especially me you know oh he's a little porky so I'm sure he's eating so you know what I did my job kind of wash the hands right and the thing that for me which really stood out for my favorite worker was how she would try and go that extra mile to really 
sit down and, you know, there'd be the small things like uh, our little car rides or, you know, we would have fun conversations about, you know, things that I like and maybe things that she likes. And, you know, so it was just that connection, that additional little connection, which makes all the difference. Well, and, and, and I think that, and, and I, I wasn't rolling my eyes at you, but it was this <laughs> idea of like, oh, he's fed, he has clothes and he's smiling. He's, he's fine. Right. <laughs> and that's such a, like a check, check, check on the next kid. Yeah. But there is that emotional nourishment that everybody needs. I don't care what age you are. I, I'm, you know, I'm talking to a 97 year old person after this interview and he's in a home and it's like, there's another huge case that's being overlooked is that people, we are societal creatures, you know, and we function best when we have that network, that connection, that's that emotional, social nourishment. And you had a lot of that with your sister. Now, now I haven't got to that part yet, but were you, it, it, I think you mentioned that you guys were separated at times. Is that correct? Yes. So for most of our life, actually, we were separated. And um, one thing you'll notice as you go on in the book, so um, because she was the only constant uh, familial bond that I've had in my in my life. And so, you know, I wanted to honor that in some way. And uh, just because, you know, I'm not just sharing my story, I'm sharing our story, you know, her story, uh, a little bit from my perspective. And uh, so what I did was I tried to take her out of my story, my journey, um, and kind of do a combined piece. So mm -hmm. chapter 14 in my book is, um, you'll, you'll notice it kind of goes back all the way to the beginning up until, you know, up until the end of chapter 13. So it, um, so it's definitely more, you'll see a lot more her there, but, uh, but yeah, for a long time, we were separated, um, from six years old, and uh, we didn't end up living together until um, I moved back with my biological mother. And, you know, that um, to keep her in my life, it almost seemed like a, a fight and a struggle in its own because um, that visitation was so infre in infrequent and uh, didn't happen as much as it probably should have. And it was also used as, um, you know, a punishment for um, mm. misbehaving and um you know that was really difficult too and um so you would go months at a time without even talking on the phone because you know you swore your teacher you know when you're having a bad day and um so it was just um it was definitely a, a rocky journey for the two of us as you know a family so and and your sister is is she a year older than you i think you mentioned yeah so she's 11 months older right yeah. And but but today, you know, you're you're 31, she's 32. How are I 32, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah. So how how was your connection now with you and your sister? You know, we uh we're we're still in uh you know talking and uh in each other's lives. Uh over the years we've had our um fallouts and our disagreements, you know, uh, some bigger than others, but you know it, we always find our way back to each other. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I think that's really important because, you know, we, I, well, at least for me, I don't talk to any uh, other family and, uh, she's the only one that I kind of wanted to stay in touch with mostly 
just because I know regardless of how many issues I had and struggles I had to deal with, um, she had so many more and, you know, she ended up aging out of the foster system. So she had stayed in quite a lot longer after I left. And so I knew that there was a lot more that she had to deal with and I didn't want to be another person to let her down. And, you know, so I always kind of gave her that extra, you know, break in a way just because I knew she felt as though she didn't really have people on her side and I didn't want to be another one of them. And again, you know, my, my experiences are, are, are different than yours, but there's sort of with your sister, you guys had similar experiences or, or at least you had each other to sort of that kind of camaraderie through these, you know, these adverse experiences that you guys had throughout your lives right Mm -hmm. yeah uh and my connection to that is that you know after my dad passed the counselor wanted to see me and was like hey i heard your dad's dead and it's like uh yeah he is and he's like well well, would you like to talk about it and it's like no i'm fine again checking those boxes never heard from that person ever again but it's like you don't understand what i'm going through how can i open up to you and I think that that's what's missing in this sort of, again, this this uh, this interesting power balance is first of all nobody wants nobody wants to be helped when they feel like they're being pitied. Yeah, right. It's about how you approach it as well. You know, like had uh, for instance the the per, you know the counselor had reached you a different way and approached you from a different perspective that maybe was more compassionate mm-hmm. you know like it's just all about how you approach certain situations and especially you know really traumatic traumatic uh, events in a person's life you know you're going to want to take that extra step to allow them a chance to connect to be like you know what yeah okay i can share that's you know i can open up a bit and 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 i think too that that the people in the system that work nobody starts getting into social work or counseling or something because they're like i want to make a million dollars i mean maybe they do but the you know i'm i'm an idealist i believe that people get into it because they want to help heal they want to help make the world a better place so often they kind of bring in their own baggage that they kind of got to deal with too, but that's neither here nor there. My point is, is, is that I think there's a lot of fatigue in, in the system workers. And while I didn't get it, that connection from the counselor, you know, and, and no knocks against that individual. I mean, they were just doing their job and again, compassion fatigue, but I found it in a teacher and man, he made all the difference. So you know, having that person, we all need that person in our corner, mm-hmm. you know, and I think yeah. that, you know, that's, that's what helps us not to survive, but thrive in your writing, in your book was, what was the, again, because it's so raw and it's so like honest, what was the hardest part for you to write about? Would you say other than obviously the whole thing, but what was like a particular moment that you're like, Oh my God, I'm, I'm having I'm struggling with this. Um, I think for me, the most difficult section would have to be um, everything to do with my adoption. Um, you know, the process prior to being adopted was, you know, really difficult. I was seven years old and it was um, a super rushed, you know, pr- procedure, I guess you could say. Uh, 
so everything just seemed to kind of, you know, there was no time to kind of step back. And so um, stepping back into that time and into those memories, um, you know, it brought up a lot. You know, I had to say goodbye to my biological family, uh, something I didn't really know about or knew what that meant. Um, and then the proceedings of adoption. And um, I know um, when I was doing what they called the life book sessions, which were kind of um, a look back on your your life up until that up until that point, um, I had a letter, like just a one page letter from my my mother. And uh, so I, but I couldn't read or write. So I kind of had to work on that with my caseworker. And it took three sessions just to read that letter, uh, you know, cause I couldn't stop crying because of all the emotion. And um, I included it in my book. Um, so, but then that just added into the adoption, right? Cause there's all these issues prior that don't get worked out. And so then you have that escape of, Ooh, I'm happy again because I have a new family, but you have, haven't worked on any of the previous issues and the loss of a biological family and mm. the understanding surrounding all of that. And then when you add in bullying and, you know, um, I had uh, some issues with my brother towards the end of my adoption. And uh, so I talk about that and that just kind wow. of um, played into the whole um, creating new issues and more trauma and more, you know, so that also didn't help. And so it was all of it combined, I think, um, was very difficult, but it was freeing as well, because I, for so long, wanted to come to terms with losing such an amazing placement um, for so many reasons that um, could have been helped had things been different. But um, but it, it was, it, like I said, it was freeing, I think, to uh, relive that and to write about it and talk about it so well the the catharsis of going into these things that like nobody wants to we comfort is you know we we, we choose comfort for a reason it's easy but discomfort going into the cave that we we you know we fear to enter is could hold the treasure that we seek to find, you know, that old saying, but we have to do that very scary, dangerous work of, you know, facing ourselves and our own demons. And we talk about uh, the, the, the sort of the cycle of poverty, of abuse and all these things. And the fact remains that hurt people hurt people. And as I'm reading the story of your parents, you know, I, I can't help but think whatever happened when they were children, you know, Again, not to make it about them, yeah. but 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 that's how these things can carry on, right? And and my own father who passed away, he really struggled with, you know, his own things. And and as a consequence, I struggled with, you know, substances when I was in my 20s. You know, is am I having fun or am I escaping? Yeah. Right. I was escaping. <laughs> Anyways, in your experiences, have you did you struggle with substances or were you able to through your writing, kind of avoid the pitfalls that your parents went through? Oh, I definitely struggled. I definitely, um, you know, wanted to heal, I guess you could say, in, in a way. Um, you know, I was first introduced to, you know, substances and when, when I was 12. And uh, so I started, you know, light, 
like not a lot, just a, a little bit. And it was more so just to kind of escape everything that was going on. And so as I got older, um, I think my my sister fell into that kind of uh, way of life a lot more. And um, that kind of acted as, um, as like, it, it gave me something to see what could become of me had I gone down that way, uh, down that road. And um, it wasn't what I wanted. You know, I'd worked so long and so hard to kind of, get out of trouble to find a place and you know it's unfortunate because through her um her downfalls i i saw a way to kind of come out of it um you know i still obviously wanted to help her and be there for her just because she needed to figure out her to work through her issues on her own um just because i think that would help her a lot more you know, but it, it's difficult because you so badly want to be there right in the center and be like, no, don't do that because that's not going to work. But, you know, in a lot of ways, she needed to find that out. And so I used that to be like, okay, you know, I can, you know, smoke a joint or whatever at school here or there. Um, but as long as I know the difference between what's just recreational once in the blue moon and then where mm. it can become an issue and so after a while I was just doing everything I could to just completely stay away um, just so I don't have to be put in that kind of situation well and oh man you made a really good point about you know you can't rescue your sister especially if you if if you yourself need saving and I I call this the superhero syndrome you know, sometimes our, our most favorite heroes are our most broken individuals, like Batman. You yeah. know, like he's going around beating the piss out of Joker, but he's like, I'm such a failure. You know what I mean? He has to go through his own thing. And if we want to save the world, we really have to start with saving ourselves and yeah. being that example. And my friend, like that's what you're encapsulating in this work is I want to heal myself. And this is my evidence of it, you know, right. and, yeah. and, and, and that's what I, what I believe you have achieved and you're just getting started. Oh, I'm totally getting started. <laughs> and, you know, and the way it's I, exciting. oh, it's totally yeah. exciting. And, you know, the more I heal myself, mm -hmm. the better position I can be to be there for people like my sister or be there for other kids who are going through it where, you know, you offer a little bit of advice doesn't mean they have to take it you know I certainly didn't take any advice <laughs> when I was growing up either yeah. but it's it's those things that really stick in your mind you know and um, whether somebody listens and adjusts their current actions at that time you know it doesn't mean they they won't kind of go back to that those those pieces of advice later that is oh yeah man you're 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 bringing me into it. You know what I mean? Like my own experiences. And you're so right. It's, it's, you know, you could take the, you could take the horse to water, but can't make a drink. Th that's an individual. You know what I mean? You can't like waterboard them because you'll drown them. Yeah. And that's the reality. And in our culture, you know, Bernie Brown talks about it. Gabor Mate talks about it. Shame is not an educator, but that's what we use. Shame. Yeah. You know, like the other day, I, I, I have problems with anger. And, uh, you know, and I think it's just because I'm such a compulsive individual. But anyways, 
So I was driving and I was up at five in the morning. My kid woke me up who I love at like three. So I'm already like lack of sleep. I forget my mask because I'm going to go to the gym. And as I'm driving, I'm like, shut. And then I'm like, oh, I got mad. And it's like, hold on. Let's just take a step back here for a sec. I am an animal. I'm functioning on three hours of sleep. I'm trying to better myself by going to the gym. That's something I don't want to do because it's uncomfortable. <laughs> and I forget my mask, which is like, oh, my God. And then no wonder I get upset. But in our culture, it's like, why did you get upset? What's wrong with you? And that doesn't work for anybody. That yeah. just further pushes them into, you know, like, why are you such a drunk? It's like, do you, do you really think that's going to get a person to stop drinking? Talking no. to them like that? <laughs> so definitely <Right>? not. <laughs> so I imagine in your life, you've had to overcome a lot of these, these shaming sort of techniques that are based out of, you know, this... The, the the good intentions of making a person better but it doesn't work so how did you kind of overcome the shame that people threw at you in your life <sighs> uh it took a long time i can tell you that you know uh and i think it's just try to find alternatives you know um so for me um for instance quite often i'd be told you know um, don't talk back to, you know, mm. the adults or don't talk back to the teacher. Right. And, and so trying to, um, it was with each problem, it was about trying to find a solution for it. And it didn't always happen right away. So for me, in certain instances, um, it would be okay, I'm going to try and refrain from speaking back, but I'll roll my eyes. <laughs> um, because it, you know, hey, I, I'm not talking back. I'm not cursing. I'm not swearing, but you're going to get an eye roll. So it's either the eye roll or, or the talk back. And um, so over time, I think, and even today, I'm still quite the eye roller. <laughs> you know, it's just easier, like, okay. Yeah, but, um, yeah. You know, but then you can. It's involuntary. Yeah, it's involuntary. <laughs> oh, it happens so often. I'm surprised my eyes aren't in the back of my head. <laughs> but, uh, you know, you. Uh, then you can kind of slowly work at that where you can have a bit more control. So you do it piece by piece until you're able to be like, I can take a deep breath and just calm down and kind of check myself. I'm not speaking back. I'm not cursing. I'm not eye rolling even um, where I can just be like, okay, you know, and just kind of find the, the calmer maybe solution. It's not easy. It takes a long time. <laughs> at least it did for me, but and, and, and such a wonderful point of, you know, this calmer method, if you keep, if you keep your engine from overfilling, right. But going back to my example, you know, I got one, two, three, four, five, I snap. Well, no wonder, right. The glass was overfilling. Piles up. Exactly. So that self-care piece of what works for you to that daily healing. Right. And, and it, from what I picked up from the book is writing for you is that sort of daily activity that brings you that sort of uh, serenity or just, just kind of lowers your glass so that if somebody says something ignorant, which unfortunately there's an unlimited supply of that. Oh, you can you go don't snap, it. right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You just have to leave your house. Right? Yeah, you don't exactly. even have to leave your house. Just go on the internet. But yeah. yeah. And, and, and I, I guess... So I, sorry, I don't want to take words away from you, but what has been sort of your daily practice 
to uh, uh, maintain your sort of serenity? Oh, um, well, one thing I can say is, especially within this last year, you know, um, with everything going on all over the world from, you know, racism, from a pandemic, you know, it just makes you really call into question um, the people you have in your life and the things that you do on a daily basis. So I actually stopped talking to so many people because I was like, you know what, like, especially from things that you think you need to post on social media. No, you don't. First off, you know, that's not a way to talk to people, you know, mm-hmm. don't need to bring them down. So I don't need that in my life. You know, I've had enough people trying to bring me down. The last thing I want to do is try and bring somebody else down for, you know, something that doesn't matter. And so, you know, erasing those kind of negative people really help. And um, so it's just about finding, finding those instances within your daily routine and your activities okay well what can I make things better and for your instance you know I'm sure you probably thought you know what maybe I should just leave a a mask in my car so at least that's one thing I don't have to worry about you know that's one less uh, thing that can kind of ruin my day or make me feel Mm -hmm. upset and you know so it's just about finding those small pieces and you know I have um my writing um so i do a little bit here there uh have my coffee my quiet time where i can just kind of contemplate and kind of just relax i can put music on and just have my zen moment but uh, of course with a puppy you know that the constant barking and attention that doesn't always help but it's a nice distraction as well and 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 the companionship as well with the dog right for sure yeah because because dogs don't roll their eyes at us no, <laughs> although mine will, I, I think, uh, I think mine picked <laughs> up on that. It. Oh, he, he has so much attitude. It's just like a little mini me if I was a puppy. <laughs> Funny how that happens. Yeah. yeah. Well, for me, what's really helped is, you know, and, and maybe you've seen it because I, yeah, I get very easily excited, but it's the deep breathing, you know, and people, they sometimes go, when I go, like is everything all right i'm like yeah because i because i'm doing this that's why everything's all right you know and and those things that we can do right away because not everybody including yourself or myself we can't just pull our notepad out start writing we got those easy quick things that we can access and for me it's been breathing you know and it sounds like for you 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 sort of have this this if if i allow time for myself that can allow me to recharge yeah. Yeah. The other thing that uh, a really interesting point in your book was the second time you bit somebody, <laughs> the mother talked to you and asked you what had happened. And I think that that was such a, a change in terms of like, what the hell's wrong with you, Casey? You know, like you're biting people. It was like, okay, tell me why yeah. you did this. And you did. And she didn't backhand you after she spoke to her daughter. And then there were never problems after that from, from what I was understanding in that chapter. Okay. So yeah, that, um, I, I, so the chapter, um, what you're referring to, it was, um, that incidents was, um, slightly different. So there was, um, altercations with two individuals, um, um, during my time of being adopted. And so one, um, I, was this male bully that I had and he uh 
you know, the only thing I had, like my only way of defending myself was to bite, you know, um, I wasn't very, I wasn't strong, you know, he was older, he was bigger and, you know, I was on the bus. And so anyways, and I kind of snapped and bit him and made him bleed. And so my adoptive mother, you know, and, and her husband, my adoptive father, they both spoke to me because it was obviously a concern. And so we, um, talked about it but it was one of the first times where um the way they went about handling that kind of situation was new but it was very appreciative because they wanted to get right down to the root of the issues and to try and work things out and with another female uh, bully you know with everything that happened with her we ended up going to you know her house speaking with her mother you know and there was um, apologies that were done and you know to not just avoid and say okay well we'll deal with consequences but we'll not actually get to the situation and so we were able to kind of work on that together and it was um it was something i didn't experience either and uh but it was definitely something that was to be appreciated because the, the reason I bring that up is as a parent, um, I mean, I can't even, words would betray how much I love my kid. And if something ever happened to her, it's like, the, my first instinct is like, well, you know, what did the other person do? The reality is, is my kid is not a saint. Like I watch her and she's got some, uh, she takes after her dad. I'll just say that much. <laughs> but but the fact that that this adult who wasn't, you know, you weren't their kid. They listened to you. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I just think that that's so empowering as parents. And, and I feel like that strategy or that tactic or whatever you want to call it is not so often used anymore. And it's to the deficit of our children, you know, this sort of uh, exceptionalism of our children, you know, how are we, how are we teaching them to become better citizens if we're not, you know, not disciplining them when we need to? And, and, and I don't mean discipline as in like, but having a conversation and understanding the why. Because when we do that, we will make stronger people, you know. Inclusivity, uh, being inclusive, being compassionate, it makes us better. You know what I mean? It's not just like... A, you know, all oh, the world's flowers and all that stuff. Truly, when we are compassionate, we become better humans. Oh, for sure. <laughs> yeah. And I guess I'm just looking at the time here too. Now, the movie Shawshank Redemption, you know, it's a film. And have you seen it? I, I, I seen it like years ago. So okay. I, I, you know, I don't know it, uh, you know, piece by piece, but yes. You, you don't need to see it to understand this point, but okay. he goes to prison, he's wrongfully in prison and he gets out and it's raining and he's like, ah, my point well, is, is. That's the one that he went through the tunnel through. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Literally through, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Literally he went through mud and human mud. Anyways. Yeah. So he gets out and it's raining. My point is, is that, that's such a wonderful illustration for life. And we, we toil and we go through these moments, but there are moments of like just absolute clarity. And, and we see films and we're like, okay, that's great that they fit that into two and a half hours. And, but, but we do have those moments in life. I've had those moments. What was a moment in your life when you had that sort of moment of clarity? 
you know, all this pain that you experienced, all these adverse situations, did you, or did you have a moment when you're like, you know, there's this clarity, there's this understanding, there's peace. I think for me, um, the biggest clarity, um, so I'm, I'm actually writing the second part to my book only because I thought it would be important to share what happens potentially with the child once they leave the system, you know, especially mm. after spending their life in there. Uh, you know, it's always the wonder, well, okay, well, they're back with their parents or, you know, we found an adoption for them. So let's, you know, I'm sure everything's going to be great, but that's not always the case. And so I wanted to kind of touch base on what um, the possibility is of a child leaving the system. And so at the beginning of my second part um, was after I was returned to my mother and um, that moment of just the door kind of hitting my worker on the way out, you know, well, not actually hitting him, but once it closed, once he, he left, um, you know, right there, it was like, an instant um release it, it was just it was an, an incredible feeling and you know I had started to feel that on the drive out uh you know because I was so determined to make this arrangement work uh moving back in with her and I knew it was going to be trial and error but I was so determined and so I was starting to get that bit of clarity but once um once he left um it was just so many things kind of clicked for me and it was just my mind had completely opened and changed and you know it was just an amazing feeling like it was would you say it was kind of the completion of of, of missing parts of this story like it was like whoosh. oh total full yeah. circle kind of moment you know and you spend so long dreaming and hoping and praying and everything. And then finally you're, you're there, you're up on the, you know, the, the top of the hill, right. you know, and, and it, it doesn't always happen where it's perfect. And it certainly didn't um, become perfect for me, but in that moment, you know, there was no worry. There was no stress, you know, I could, you know, exhale and all the pain and trauma and everything for that moment was just gone. And that feeling is something that I'll always remember no matter what I go through. And it's just something I constantly go back to, to remind myself. I, I, I know uh, of people quite close to me who, you know, they've been adopted and, uh, they, they haven't met their, their biological parents yet. And, it causes them such grief or, or some of them who have met their parents. And it was like, it just kind of was like a, they slumped from it. You know, it wasn't the, what they had expected and it disappointed them, you know, and, and, and I don't want to take words from them, but that's kind of what I picked up from what they've told me. Yeah. What advice do you have to anybody who has been, you know, they've, they've never met their parents. They've been adopted. And they're in this kind of purgatorial state of who am I? Like, what, what advice do you have to, to listeners? Um, well, for myself, um, I mean, obviously everybody's going to have their own opinion. And, you know, I've met various people over the course of my time in the system and even afterwards who've been in those situations. Um, in my book, I write about what was best for me. Right. Um, 
And so, you know, somebody else can kind of go with that, use it as reference. But um, it's a difficult thing because, you know, I don't think there's ever a right or wrong. You know, it's kind of a mix. Um, you know, is it better to not know anything about where you come from and just live in the moment, especially if you have a happy home? Or is it going to be more beneficial to have some knowledge as to why you were adopted, you know? But I think it's going to be, you kind of need to really weigh the pros and cons. Um, what's going to be most important for you? Um, what's going to mean the most to you in going forward? Um, is it going to change your perspective of the adoptive parents that you're with? And, you know, so you got to keep asking yourself these questions and trying to figure out what is best. And maybe by the end of the whole process, um, you know, which you don't need to make right away. It doesn't need to be an instant thing. You can take some time, um, but ask yourself and come to terms with, do I need that information in order to live my best life? Right. Right. But it's, it's definitely a tricky thing. Um, that's a, that's, yeah. You know, I think for me, um, going into my adoption at the age I was, you know, I knew certain aspects of my biological family, but there was still so much that I didn't. Um, but then I was also carrying the pain and trauma of the issues and violence and abuse yeah. and all that. And, you know, so that just kind of weighed on it. And But there was always that um, curiosity that I couldn't shake about, mm. well, who are they and what exactly happened? And... Um, I wasn't able to figure that out then, you know, and think about, okay, well, do I need to know this in order to be happy? Because I'm with a family who's really loving and really caring. Um, so should I be holding on to that instead? And it's just, it's a definite trial and error, which is unfortunate, you know, but I don't think there's any real right or wrong answer. I think too that, I mean, in uh, on my dad's side of the family, and if they're listening, I love you guys, <laughs> but the, their, their idea of like being a grant because my last name's grant is very like this is who you are like it's in your dna and i imagine as someone who didn't know their parents there's that nurture nature piece of you know who am i like do i do these things because you know i i have no control over it and i think that that you know i'll, I'll kind of speak for myself there's a bit of a scientific fallacy going on there in terms of the biology of you know well i'm just this way because of my parents and maybe, yes, maybe that's the reaction, but anything can be, most anything can be unchanged, right? Of course, you know, things, situations of the brain, you know, I can't, I can only speak for myself. Yeah. I can only speak for myself, but I know my tendencies, you know, for example, the anger or the substance choices or whatever, that it's not exactly empowering if I say I'm like this just because of that. You know, I have power in myself to sort of tap into that and make my situation better and not just be a victim to the world right again i'll speak for myself i can't speak yeah. for anybody else and 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 that's what i picked up from your work is it's very much about this is my process and owning it you know that mm -hmm. ownership this is my life kind of last question for you because i realize we're running out of time oh of course and this always happens <laughs> but you mentioned that a very difficult part for you was writing about when you were seven years old and going through the adoption process. For me, it, went, it was when I was 15 and 
if I could go back in time and speak to my 15-year-old self, because truthfully, man, I was very hopeless. And it's a very scary place to be, to feel hopeless. If I could go back in time and speak to myself, I often wonder, you know, what I'd say. And this isn't about me, but if you could go back in time to your seven-year-old self, I imagine that was a period where you felt a little bit hopeless, uncertain, right? Again, I imagine, I don't know. Yeah. But what would you say to yourself now? Now that you're 31 years old, you've written a book, hmm. what would you say to yourself? That's, uh, that's actually really difficult. Um, uh, it's, I, I think um, in, there's a part towards the end of my book that I kind of write, touch base on what I'm saying, uh, about to say, but um, looking back, I almost am grateful, as weird as it sounds, of having to deal with those struggles. Um, having a obviously, I would prefer not to have dealt with any of them. Of no, I think it would certainly make uh, life easier. But you know, the way I see it, life isn't easy. Um, and by learning, um, especially looking back at everything, and especially around that time, you know, it uh, gave me a sense of different aspects of people and about life, and just so many life lessons that I never would have fully understood. And I think going through those situations is empowering. Mm -hmm. And it's um, not only for myself, but those, you know, I keep in my life, you know, it's something that I can share with them um, and help others in some ways, whether it be to share my experiences and, you know, things that may have helped me or didn't help me. And uh, if they choose that they can go that route as well but yeah I don't I don't know if I would say anything to really change because I don't think I would want to right just because um like obviously it was really crappy time and I definitely was not happy then but looking back now it's something that I can actually feel proud of you know it's you know here I am 31 um don't no criminal record you know, no substance abuse issues. You know, I actually graduated high school, which was not something that a lot of people in my family had done, um, you know, and it was just little things. And so it was just something to be um, proud of that I was able to kind of make something of my myself because of those struggles and because of those tough uh, situations. And for, you know, kind of to... to talk about what I was thinking too is that that moment of clarity that I had it was because I made peace with my inner child yeah and I guess that's sort of my question is you know have you had you it sounds like you have made peace with your inner oh child. I definitely yeah. made peace you know I've yeah. uh, it took a long time but yeah I've uh, definitely made peace with all of it and having to relive it and talk about it you know it's just it's easier each time you do it and you're at the point where you're content with how things have gone and have things have become for you. And so, yeah, definitely at peace. Yeah. And, and that it's going to be okay. Like that's what I would say to yeah. my 15 year old. It's going to be all right. Yeah. Just hang in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So Casey, thank you so much. So your book, 13 years in foster care. Uh, it's, um, 
It was released December 10th, 2020. Tell yes. us, tell us where we can get that. Yeah, so it's a uh, 13 years fostered um, subtitle. Excuse me, uh, fostered. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a young man struggled for life, and you can basically get it anywhere. Um, Amazon offers really fast delivery. Obviously, um, if you're in Calgary, uh, chapters. Um, most chapters actually have it in store, so you can do that or Owl's Nest Books. Um, but pretty much anywhere online, if you're an online shopper, just Google it and have at it. <laughs> Now, is there an audiobook version available? No, there isn't. Okay. Um, it, it might be something uh, I've been asked that uh, quite a few times. It wasn't, in all honesty, it wasn't something I had even considered or thought of. And then I was thinking to myself, I'm already self-conscious about my voice. So how do I, you know, I probably... You have a wonderful my... voice. You have a wonderful <laughs> voice. Yeah. And, but then it's so, so many things. But I think um, mm -hmm. I'll wait a little bit and see how things go. And uh, it's always something I can... Uh, kind of go down that path later but for now i think uh the print <laughs> wonderful yes yeah well like i said thank you so much and thank um, you so much for having me this was awesome oh it, my honestly my privilege thank you once again that was casey hardman author of 13 Years Fostered, A Young Man's Struggle for Life. Uh, just, you know, his words kind of hit me on a level of reminding me the importance of what it is that I do, and that what we all do in our interactions with others, and how we treat others can make all the difference in their lives. We don't need to morally, you know, coach them or stand on a pedestal or anything like that. All we have to do is just be present. That's all it takes. And that's all of what so many of us need, myself included. I hope you enjoyed uh, Casey's words. And I hope you got something out of them. And I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you for listening. Thank you again for listening. I'm Robert Grant, and I'm probably wrong about everything.